everybody. Uh, my name is Adrian O'Dell, and as you'll learn, I wasn't always that. Um, uh, I'm the chair of the Norfolk Polish Heritage Group, which was started a couple of years ago with the aim to uh, research uh, and record and archive immigrant stories, Polish immigrant stories, to Norfolk. Uh, and most of those, of course, came from, uh, from World War II uh, and later. But there were Poles connected with Norfolk a long time before that, uh, almost back to the time of the strangers. But um, uh, what I'm going to be talking to you today about, first of all, are there any Polish speakers or anybody with Polish blood in them? Because you're going to learn the first word that you need to know in Polish this morning. And it is this word here. Can you wrap your, your tongues around that? Very good. It's cześć. Everybody, cześć. And that means hello. So uh, that's the start of things. And um, today, we're going to be talking about somebody very specific and very, very close to me, my father. Uh, and uh, this is about his flight. And you can see there's a double meaning there. He was a, uh, an airman. And he escaped from Poland to Britain between 1939 and 1940. And he was a capitan or a flight lieutenant in the Polish Air Force. And his name was Stefan Zdobyzław Zhukowski. And I was born Zhukowski. And I'll tell you about how that changed recently. And this is from his own diary, written very parts of it during the war and part of it after the war, translated by my mother, who became a Polish speaker. She was English a nurse from Blackburn in Lancashire, and edited by me some, some years ago. And for the Norfolk Polish Heritage Group, I put this presentation together uh, with more graphics than just words, and uh, we'll see how we go. Part of this, I will not speak to you in Polish, but I'll give you my father's accent. Uh, and uh, I'll start by saying, at the beginning of the war, I was 30 years old had a printing business, and lived in my own flat in Warsaw. My father, Alexander Zhukovsky, and my stepmother, Helena, lived on Vitorska Street, our family home. My brother, Jan, and his wife, Jadwiga, and their little four-year-old daughter, Wanda, lived on Marszakowska Street. That was the, the big street in Warsaw. And uh, he was a lawyer. And uh, uh, he also used where his house as his office. And this was my father, Stefan Zhukovsky, a nice young 29-year-old. And then a year later, when he was conscripted or joined, he was a reserve officer, joined the Polish Air Force. Uh, his brother, Jan, would, had been in the army, was a little bit older than him. And uh, he was called up in the third week of August 1939 to his regiment near the Russian border. Of course, there were the Russians and the Germans, as there have been uh, through Polish history. And uh, my father was mobilized as a captain uh, to the number one regiment in the Air Force on the 31st of August, 1939. And that was his birthday, actually, the 31st of August. And this is going to be his diary, and I'll be speaking in his voice, but not with the accent all the time. I didn't know then that I was taking the first steps on a journey that would take me 9,000 miles 
through nine countries from Warsaw to Britain and this is my diary. Report to the gates of Okensia Aerodrome but they are locked as all the planes had flown away before the Germans arrived. Groups of officers standing about and the airfield has been bombed by Germans this morning. We were taken by trucks to the racetrack at Szlovedzic, south of Warsaw, and there there were two or three hundred Air Force personnel assembled there. And we were fed and we stayed there for three to four days. And we could hear bombs falling nearby and we were told that we would leave on the 6th of September. And that's the bombing of the Warsaw Royal Paris. Uh, palace. Tuesday the 5th of September went again into Warsaw to say goodbye to my parents. I had my last meal at home and my stepmother made me a parcel of food with some towels and other things to take with me. And when leaving my father came with me to the tram stop in Pulaska Street and we embraced and uh, said goodbye and he waved to me and that was the last time I ever saw my father. We returned to uh, Stuvecic, that was the race uh, course, and we were stopped by a large crowd outside the uh, uh, British Embassy. Britain had just declared war on the 3rd of September and the people were cheering the British and celebrating. That evening at the race course our group of 25 Air Force Reserve officers made preparations to leave the next morning and on Wednesday the 6th we could still hear the bombs falling on Warsaw. It was close. We were just outside Warsaw. From Warsaw to Szedlice to Brescht, there's lots of tongue twisters in this presentation. We left in vans for Warsaw East Railway Station in Praga and we were ordered to go to Brescht Aerodrome on the East Polish-Russian border. So we've got, we, we have Eastern Poland, here's the USSR, on the, on the west, of course, the Germans, Czechoslovakia, but uh, this was a big problem area and we were over, going over here towards the Russian border. Outside Warsaw, German bombers attacked the train and we all had to scramble out and hide in ditches alongside the track and the train was badly damaged. The planes came back and we see a young girl looking after geese in the field and one plane swoops down and machine guns her and the geese. And we were shocked. Uh, we were horrified by the pilot's inhumanity. We had to walk back several kilometers to Minsk as the train was out of action. And in a garage, we found a, an open truck and we requisitioned it. About 20 of us set off for Brescht. And in the afternoon, we reached Shedlitzer, my birthplace, which was on fire. We passed St Stanislav Church where I was christened and turned off towards Brescht. We find we can't reach the aerodrome at Brescht because it's been bombarded and personal, personnel who've escaped are trying to hide in trenches. We hid the truck amongst damaged buildings near the airfield and made for the trenches with the others and found the commanding officer of the people who were there and he was very unsettled by suddenly this arrival of more people to deal with. He told us he's moving all his men south to Zalichki, close to the Romanian frontier and told us to get some fuel and escape by truck as soon as the bombing stopped. 
Saturday the 9th to Sunday the 10th of September, we park up at the airfield and I'm appointed to arrange the food. We pool our money and we buy a primer stove, some pans and cups to make drinks, and we leave Brest and spend the night near Wadimiesh. Tuesday the 12th of September, journey on towards Wutsk, that's pronounced Wutsk, difficult language. We see bombing in the distance. We stop in a wood, leaving the van on the road, and can hear bombs and machine gun fire. And we see German planes again approaching, and we spread out in the woods lying on the ground, and I watch a plane approaching, firing machine gun bullets at the ground. But fortunately, it stopped about 100 yards away from me, and I was very lucky. I had a very lucky escape, no injury. And we stayed the night in that wood. The following night, the Wednesday, we were getting low on petrol, so we stopped in another small town called Chemianets, and the inhabitants tell us that the Russians have crossed the border and coming through, and we don't know what to do. We ask if there's any fuel, but of course there are no petrol stations around, but we do find an old bus there, and it's a British Leyland coach with two men inside, and they'd come from the east, uh, sorry, from the west, from Katowice over here, and they'd come across to there. And um, uh, it was filled with uh, spare parts and tires. And they say, the Russians, they've crossed the frontier, and we don't know what to do. So we decided we'll commandeer this bus. And we put, left all the spares in a nearby school, and the driver took us on towards the Romanian border, which is down in the... We're, we're moving in this direction, down here. We arrived next day in Zalecki and uh, <coughs> uh, reported to the police force headquarters and we were told we'd be crossing Romania, the Romanian frontier in two days' time. We were given some Polish money and told to buy civilian clothes because we were still in our Polish Air Force uniforms and any other necessities we needed for a long journey. On the Sunday, we reached the frontier and there were lots of cars and trucks full of poles and some pilots who'd been shot down and then lots of other pilots who'd abandoned their planes because they didn't have any fuel for them. The Poles had a big air force actually, uh, uh, more advanced than the, the British air force at that stage, uh, but they didn't have the, uh, the resources, the supplies to, to, um, uh, to fuel the planes. And we think we're probably the last Poles to escape for, to Romania. And we were addressed by a Polish general who said, I'm very sorry that we had to leave our dear country. I understand that some of you may have families and may wish to stay and fight. And one of 20 or so of us who are going back is my friend Richard. He had a wife and a new baby in Warsaw. Poland to Tulkra in Romania. <coughs> We didn't really come across any border guards. There were no border guards on this southern border. Of course, it was uh, away from the action. And we were able to drive through the countryside without making any contact at all with any Romanians. It was strange. 
On Monday the 28th to the 21st of September, we entered a town called Sushrawa and spoke to the police. They didn't know what to do with us. Uh, uh, they told us to go on to another town called Foxani, and the authorities kept moving us on from village to vigil, village uh, for several days. Then we moved on to Tulkra. Now, Tulkra is a small town at the start of the delta onto the Danube. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it flows into the Black Sea, and although, of course, we all know the Danube is a beautiful river, this was a horrible place. It was an ugly, wide, marshy swamp stretching for several kilometres with rushes everywhere, and it was infested with malaria-bearing mosquitoes and really impassable. You couldn't get through it. But about a mile from Tulka, there was a complex of bar barracks where the Royal Guard King Carol II of Romania uh, was housed, and his Royal Guards were housed there. And there were several hundred Poles already there. Officers billeted in private houses and the other ranks in tents in the Royal Garden of the barracks, of the, of the palace. We all feel very sad and confused. We've left our homes and families, and here we are, virtual prisoners, and not knowing what is going to happen to us. Some of us are reduced to tears when we think all we have left behind. We feel betrayed by the Polish government and the military leaders, and we are having noisy arguments between the Air Force and the Army. We blame each other for our plight, and we have had, uh, we have had days of anger and strife. We've lost our country and our freedom, hard won after years of oppression by Russia and Germany. We're in desolate state. After three or four days, we hear that the Polish men in the tents have revolted and disarmed their Romanian guards surrounding the camp. And the police must have phoned the capital, Bucharest, because a Romanian general arrives from the war ministry by plane. We demand that our officers, us, we were barred from the men's camp, should be allowed to take charge there. The terrible food situation must be uh, improved and we need toilet and sanitary assistance. We had to just do it wherever we, uh, we could. There were no sanitary arrangements. The general agreed to this and the officers, uh, we the officers were organizing the supervision of our men, but the days were passing very slowly. We were despondent and couldn't do anything to better our situation. And we couldn't, of course, contact our families in, in, throughout Poland. Some personnel were starting to disappear and we find that a number of officers have left Tulkra and are making their way to Bucharest, trying to get to France, because of course, Bucharest, the capital, had all the embassies and all the, the means of getting visas and that sort of thing. My friend Paiko and I decided to make for Bucharest for, to get passports. We're going to do it secretly because we're not supposed to leave Tokra and we hide in bushes opposite the railway station and when a train comes along it just managed to stop and we just jumped aboard and gave money to the ticket collector on the train. In four hours we'd arrived at the capital 
but there was a queue going round the embassy five times, people queuing to get papers. Most of the people were Polish in civilian, they were Polish soldiers in civilian clothes, and we managed to find some friends in the crowd who told us they'd been queuing for several days and nights. The Polish officers were being controlled by Romanians, very bureaucratic, uh, very unfriendly and unpleasant, but nevertheless, I got my passport. We'd been living in a hotel near the embassy, but after three days we have no hope of getting travel papers and we're running out of money for the hotel and for food. We'll have to go back to Tulkra. I've grown a beard so that when I go for a visa, I can pass as a non-military person, not clean-shaven. Heine Lydia, Romania, October 1939. The authorities have decided there are too many Poles in Tulkra, so we're being moved to a large village nearby called Hainolidia. I don't speak Romanian, sorry. And I am billeted on a very poor farm in a wooden building with just one room on each side of the corridor for the whole family. It's a very poor place. I've got a small room with just a wooden bed and nothing else but a, land, a candle to light me to bed. There's no mattress only a pile of maize stems cut to fit the length of the bed, no pillow and one linen sheet. I try to sleep on this, but after an hour or so, I separate the maize stems and try to sleep between them without any success. And our bathroom is a tin basin on a wooden box in the passage with a jug of cold water, no soap, no towel. This morning, I eat some of the bread and meat I brought with me and there's a small baby lying in a box outside the house. And every two or three days, it has a malaria attack. And each time I walk past it, I have to shoo away clouds of flies. This family lived in abject poverty. Having stayed in the village for a week with nothing to do but eat bread and eggs and drink tea, we received instructions to board a train nearby and we had to walk two or three miles to the railway stop, and there wasn't a station, but we did clamber aboard a train that was there, and it kept stopping frequently on its journey. Saturday, the 21st of October, after four days on the train, we arrived at Babadag, a small town in western Romania, on the banks of the wide Taita River. I can't show you that, but it is there. In Bab Babadag, some Poles have escaped to try to get to Bucharest, although the town is surrounded by soldiers. And my friend Pico says, I will also try to get away by swimming across the river to get to Bucharest. But I can't swim, so I have to stay. And my father couldn't swim till, he, till his dying day. He might have learned. Uh, I've lost my travelling companion. Sunday the 29th of October, today I've plucked up courage and will try to get away. There's a heavily guarded bus which leaves early each morning to go to Bucharest. So this is the trip from Hainaladia to Babadag to Bucharest and then on to Constanta. Monday the 30th of October, I rise early and go to the garage where the bus was parked overnight. 
There are some women with baskets on the bus, so I get on the bus and I squeeze in between them, hiding in between them. But I notice at the front that right behind the driver there are two seats that are vacant. A car arrives and the chief, the head of the town's police gets out with his wife and get on the bus and sit down in the seats. Uh, and that was scary. But then a policeman gets on the bus in order to check to see if there are any poles on the bus. But he gets in the front door, sees the police chief there, salutes him and leaves the bus. So I was very lucky again. We arrived safely in Bucharest at midday and got to the Polish embassy. And I wonder how many hundreds of Poles have passed through Bucharest on their way to escape. At nine o'clock the next day, I had to go in and report to the embassy and told that I would have to queue for half a day for residence paper, papers. And at that time, we just heard the first news that we'd, we'd heard in Polish uh, since we'd left about what was going on in the world. Just to, to give you the idea of the timing, Mussolini had just joined the Germans and everybody felt very depressed. Next day I went back to the embassy to get the visa and I talked to others in the queue and they said, we haven't written home because we are afraid that the Gestapo will make trouble for our relatives and even possibly for us here in Bucharest. When I got to the passport desk, I spent the rest of the day answering questions and I had to write out my life story in order to give them the, the paperwork. On Wednesday the 1st to Tuesday the... Uh, Wednesday the 1st, we're now into November, Tuesday the 1st, the 2nd of November. Sorry, uh, am I this way? Uh, yeah, I've got to click there. And there's my French visa. I have all this documentation. We've been given a train ticket to go to the port of Constanta, down in... Uh, back on the... Uh, we saw it a minute ago. It's just here, which is on the Baltic Sea. And I'm told there will be 10 Polish Air Force mechanics there that I'm to look after them when I get there. And we'll have to stay quietly in our rooms and send out only one person at a time for necessities because there were German agents everywhere. And we're now all in civilian clothes. And I was told a sergeant will come to my room and give me 11 tickets for the boat. In Constanta, We'll go one by one to the port and not speak any Polish at all, especially while going through customs because of the German officials. And we have to be as invisible as possible. The ship we need to find for Romania, the Transylvania. Thursday, the 8th of November, a civilian comes to my room in the afternoon and I immediately realise that he was a member of the same sports club I belong to the Skra Sports Club in Warsaw, and we're so happy to see each other. But he was the man to expect uh, who would bring the tickets. He doesn't intend to go on to France, though, and will soon go back to Warsaw to see his wife and children and meet his fate, I suppose. And he gave me the 11 tickets. And the ship is going to sail tomorrow evening. Saturday, the 9th of... Uh, till Tuesday the 12th of November. We embark aboard the MS Transylvania and are very happy to leave Romania. We feel free at last, although conditions had not been too bad in Romania. And the Transylvania is a small ship going from port to port 
and you'll see the star there ending up down in Beirut. We left by the Black Sea through the southwest corner, sailed through the Sea of Marmara, through the Dardanelles, and we saw dawn and a beautiful sunshine. And at midday, we berthed at the port of Aarons in Greece, or Irons, I don't, I've never been there, I don't know how to pronounce that. And we were told we'd be staying only three hours there, but I decided I've got to take this opportunity. I'm gonna get on a tram and go into Athens. And that's what I did. And I got off the tram and I found a wide boulevard stretching into the distance and there on the hill was the Acropolis. And it was such a, a beautiful sight that he, I was quite overcome by it and the, the joy of seeing it. And then I remembered that I'd left my men on the ship and perhaps the captain might sail without me. So I returned quickly and my men tell me that a Polish freighter has just come into port full of Polish personnel. It was so crammed and packed with people, we, we hear of refugee problems today on small boats. This was a big boat. The captain was afraid it would capsize. It was so full of Polish refugees. And our captain to told us that he was setting sail for Beirut. <coughs> Monday the 13th of November, we arrive in Beirut and we're ordered to disembark. We'll be billeted in the barracks of the uh, French Foreign Legion for two days. The food is good, but too spicy. <laughs> Next day I got with two other officers and went into Beirut and we found ourselves in the Jewish quarter and we heard someone shouting excitedly behind us, Polazzi, Polazzi, Polish, Polish, with a strong Jewish accent. And we turned around and saw a Krakow uh, Jewish, a man in Krakow Jewish clothes with a black hat and dreadlocks and all the rest of it and he threw his arms around us delighted to see Poles that he hadn't seen in years uh, and uh, to hear us speaking Polish it was the first time he'd been able to speak Polish in years and I asked him uh, if he would change my Zwotis, my Polish currency into some francs for us Tuesday the 14th to Monday the 20th of November, there were buses waiting for us to go back to the port and we embarked on this beautiful French cruise ship, that one there, that actually is a picture of it, I found that on the internet, that picture of the Champollion bit in Beirut Harbour in 1939, now isn't that a wonderful thing that you can do with the internet? People who say, I don't know, that's just marvellous. That was the ship in 1939, perhaps not exactly at the same time, but uh, there. We don't realise that it's for us until we're directed to go on board. And we're in luxury quarters with plenty of food and lots of French wine to drink. We set sail and called into Jaffa en route to Alexandria, and we stayed in Alexandria for two days. An excursion was arranged to see the city, uh, probably, uh, uh, yes, just Alexandria, not into Cairo. But I had my first bad attack of malaria then. My friends called a French doctor who gave me some quinine. I was half conscious and praying to die. My father was always very dramatic, but uh, uh, he gave me some quinine tablets and soon the uh, symptoms eased and I managed to sleep and feel better. We left Alexandria and told that there's a jerk danger from 
German U-boats. We sailed directly across the Mediterranean, passing Sardinia and Sicily en route, and we reached Marseille. Took a long time. And we were in the free zone of France then. And this was my, I think coming up, there's the, there were the uh, France of course was divided between the occupied zone and the free zone, but that would, would change shortly. <coughs> and there's my Marseille disembarkation uh, stamp from the 21st of uh, November, 1939. We disembarked from the ship and we found that there's a special train for Polish personnel and that we would be taken up to Lyon. And the next day we were taken by a bus to Bron Aerodrome in central France. At the aerodrome we find hundreds of Polish officers and men walking about and standing in groups rather aimlessly. And we had to fill in more forms and we became registered. We talk about our chances of some sort of employment. After our long journey, we wanted to start fighting the enemy for the freedom of Poland. Our pilots expected to fly again, but there are no available planes at all. It's surprising and shocking that the French don't know what to do with us. Hundreds of Poles there, no idea what to do with us. And they said to us, the Poles, they cause the war. They've lost their country, and now they want to occupy our country. Outside the Polish headquarters, there were large posters hanging, and uh, we had to uh, list, there were lots of different jobs that we could do on there, and we had to write our names and rank and qualifications on there. We were given a little bit of French money, and we were told, the officers were told, we had to go into town to find somewhere, a hotel or something. There was no room for us there. My cheap hotel has a wash basin with cold water, but there's no heating in the room. This is December. And each day we meet in the town park in the summer theatre. And for breakfast, we get a small cup of coffee and a croissant from a stall on the way to the park. And we spend the rest of November doing this dreadful boredom. And at the beginning of December, we are told that we can send some parcels, some food parcels to our families in Poland and they were going to be sent from Portugal and they consisted only of tins of sardines. <laughs> After the war, my stepmother told me that my father was so happy because he knew I was still alive and the sardines were hidden in the cellar and only used when times were bad and food scarce. So the days were very tedious and no work the winter was severe and unusually for that area of France they had heavy snow. The room was freezing, we had no heating so we piled everything on top of our bed covers, old blankets we brought with us, coats and our jackets just to try and stay warm. Christmas is approaching and we want to celebrate our Polish Vigilia, that is the holiest day and the most special day in the Polish calendar, Christmas Eve. The traditional family get together with special food and quite a ritual. We still do it in my family today. On the way back from our daily meeting, we break off a small branch of a fir tree to make our own Christmas tree. And we bought two French loaves, two bottles of wine, four or five tins of sardine, and we all sit on the bed in the hotel room 
uh, to eat them. All the time we're thinking of our families in Poland, probably starving under German occupation. We sing carols, and that's our Christmas Eve over. On Christmas Day, we go to Mass in the church. January 1940, New Year comes and goes without any celebration, but it is becoming warmer and the snow is thawing. We often go by bus to see if there's any work for us, and I ask, what about my application for flying training? They reply, you are an engineer. We have hundreds of pilots, we want engineers. Wednesday the 28th, today a list is issued and my name is on it at last. We're given French Air Force unions and we're told to go to the ARAA factory near Limoges. And that factory rebuilds aero engines. It was the workshop, the reparation work for, uh, uh, shop for the uh, Air Force, I think they called it then, the Armée de l'Air, the Army of the Air uh, in Limoges. It was a French uh, place and what they did there was they refurbished these Gnome Rhone uh, engines which went into a variety of allied planes, not German planes of course. A group of 200 Poles will be formed and I will be in charge of the mechanics workshop. Captain Matzek Markovsky will be the official interpreter and he is my friend from Warsaw and it's the first time I've heard of him or seen him since I left Poland. And Vacek Markovsky, after the war, became my godfather. When the men get settled in, uh, we officers are taken into town and billed at the Hotel de la Paix, which was a first-class hotel. And we thought, oh, it's nice to have comfortable, warm bed and room. But the next day, we find that we have to pay for each meal as we eat it. And then we looked on the back of the door at the tariff, and it was just ridiculously expensive. We had no money. We had a few Zwatis or French francs in our pocket. So we had to move out because we couldn't afford it. And we bent back and camped down wherever. He doesn't say where exactly. Today, on Wednesday the 6th of March, we go to the factory and there is an official welcome party with bands playing the French and Polish national anthems. The factory managers give speeches. And after the welcome speeches, we're taken to a hotel where we spend two hours eating lunch. Trust the French. My CO tells me that I have to lecture my men about the necessity of staying friendly with the French workers. There's not much camaraderie between the Poles and the French. Today, I give my lecture on French-Polish cooperation in the factory. Apparently, and we've all heard this before, the Polish work too hard and too quickly for the French. <laughs> We're keen to do our bit, to make a fight against the Germans and help the war effort. But the French, oh, they take it easy. They don't worry about working hard. The French keep saying, doucement, slow down. And they spend a lot of time in the toilets, chatting and talking. Sometimes fights break out between the French and the, and the uh, when they try to rough up the Poles, but we give as good as we get. And the French even keep bottles in their overcoats hanging on the racks and keep drinking wine and brandy from them. I think my father was horrified by that. One incident I remember took place with a reconditioned engine. 
It had been rebuilt by a Polish squad and then sent to the test chamber for a trial. As the engine began to run, it suddenly blew up. And of course, the French blamed the Polish workers for this. And there was a big hoo-ha. The pieces of the engine were taken to an investigation uh, workshop and it was found that sand had been deliberately put into the engine to sabotage it. On Sunday the 24th of March, we managed to take some time for local excursions. Today, Vatsik and I leave Limoges at 3 o'clock in the morning and go by train to Lourdes, which is not far from there. And of course, the Poles were very uh, devout Catholics. And uh, they spent a wonderful day in a 48-hour leave pass he got to go to Limoges. And we found it crowded with pilgrims, so we joined people walking to the shrine. And we attended an open-air mass in the holy place and prayed for our families and for Poland. The next day we returned to Limoges and we also went to see the Limoges porcelain factory and that was significant in my father's later life, the, the porcelain. Today I receive card from my father to say he is alive and well. He also tells me that my brother Jan has been taken prisoners by the Russians and is in a camp in Starobielsk. I did not know then that he would be murdered at Katyn. For those of you who know about the murders at Katyn. The 17th to the 24th of June, the war continues and we hear that the Germans have broken a treaty and are moving south through France. Shortly after that, we hear artillery fire for the first time and it draws nearer to, the, to us the next day. Our CO meets with us all, all the Polish officers, and asks, well, what do you want to do? We decide that we have to leave Limoges and make for the south of France. The last trains will be leaving Limoges the next morning and it's impossible to book seats. During the night I have another malaria attack and I'm semi-conscious and so weak and I cried because I thought I wouldn't be able to leave. But at first light, as always happens, you tend to feel a little bit better and I force myself to get up and pack because this was a fleeing situation. We find that our, of our airmen, five have deserted and are staying behind. And at the station, the train's already waiting and full of people. And the French again taunt us by saying, ah, the Boers, they're trying to escape again. Of course. They try to stop us getting in, with some hanging onto the carriage doors and even on the couplings between the carriages. But we all manage to get on board. The train moves very slowly and after two days travelling we arrive in Toulouse and in the afternoon of June the 24th we arrive at the fishing village port of Vendre on the Mediterranean next to the Spanish border. And there's a large barracks complex there that was sort of a, a leftover from the Spanish Civil War. It housed refugees from the Spanish Civil War so there's lots of politics and warfare and grief going on at the time, all around. There are beds of, and heaps of straw and we're told we have to use those. And as we try to sleep, we're bitten by swarms of fleas and lice and bugs. So we take our blankets out, we shake them out, and we go to the beach and we lie on the beach on the sand dunes. And we're ordered to go to the port from where two large trawlers are going to take us on to Oran in Algeria. 
the journey goes on. <laughs> and that was what they used. They used trawlers and just crammed them. This is everybody just standing on deck. Fortunately, it was, uh, it was um, the warm weather. Oran in Algeria to Marrakesh and Casablanca in Morocco. This is, uh, uh, Oran, uh, this is Oran in, uh, uh, oh, I think I've got a mistake there. I think Oran should be in Algeria, uh, not Morocco, as it says at the bottom. Um, we travel for a day and a night through the Atlas Mountains and reach Marrakesh in the early morning. When we get out of the train, we find a huge open space set up with tables, more bands, and more reception committee of French generals and officers. And they say how the Poles and French have worked together uh, fighting the common enemy. The national anthems of both countries are played, and all we Poles shout, Nie gier France, long live France. We sleep overnight on the train and leave Marrakesh the next morning and travel through Morocco and finally arrive at Casablanca, which of course is on the uh, Atlantic coast. It's very hot and the sun is blazing down and we leave the train and lie on the grass and then we're told anyone who wants to can stay on the grass or be taken to truck and stay in the barracks and we had a bad experience with the last barracks but I'm one of the silly ones who decided to stay on the grass. When the sun sets, it was a lovely evening, but as darkness fell, it became extremely cold, and we felt like we were in Iceland. I had my overcoat and two blankets, but I'm still frozen, so in the morning we're taken to the barracks. These are in a very poor district, and all my dreams of romantic Casablanca vanish. It's filthy, and it stinks, and we take two days in Casablanca. We're taken by lorries to the old port on Thursday the 2nd of July and find an English collier, a coal ship, tied up there. It's discharged its cargo of coal and the crew are trying to clean it up. Our dreams of a luxury liner are dashed. When we board, we find no comfortable beds, just floors of steel sheets where we all sleep with our two blankets, clothes and bags or suitcases to use as pillows. It's awful with so many bodies packed onto the boat. However, we're very happy to be in British hands at last. At midday, we reach the Straits of Gibraltar where we wait in the Mediterranean for a convoy with which we will travel. And in a convoy of over 20 ships, including a British Navy destroyer, we leave the Mediterranean and began our voyage to Great Britain. On board, there is one Polish-English guidebook that we all fight over just to learn a few words, to learn some English words. And we spoke to the ship's officers and find out that we'll be sailing quite wide out into the Atlantic, of course, to avoid the coastal U-boats and planes German planes that were attacking any vessels around there. But in spite of that, two of our convoy were sunk en route. We arrive in Britain, but find it to be Scotland, not England. We really didn't know anything about Scotland. I'm sure they'd heard of it, but uh, they thought they were going to England. And most, or the majority of Poles who came to Britain actually came into Scotland first of all. Uh, remarkably. 
we sailed up the River Clyde and we landed in Glasgow. As we come up the river, I can see red vehicles in the distance, like toys. They turn out to be double-decker buses, something we've never seen in our lives before. We disembark and are taken by coaches to a large park on the outskirts of the city, where we are housed in tents. It is the start of a new life. This was my journey from Poland to Britain. It lasted eight months from September uh, 1939 until July 1940. It should do its own thing, found through Greece, through Palestine, Alexandria, across the Mediterranean, into France, out of France, North Africa, Morocco, up to Glasgow. 9,000 miles in total. But it wasn't going to be the end of my uh, uh, World War II as an airman, because I continued for uh, six years till 1946-7 I was demobbed. Uh, this was me in 1940. Do I resemble him at all? My son, uh, who is 45 now, uh, looks very much like him. And I was sent to Blackpool. That's where they sent all the Poles coming into Britain, to Blackpool, the Polish Air Force. It was a redistribution centre. He met my mother, Winifred Ward, who was a nurse in Blackpool, Lancashire, dancing, guess where? In the Tower Ballroom in Blackpool. And there were all these Poles in their uniforms the English, the English guys hated them. They were in their smart Polish uniforms by then, and uh, they would, you know, the Poles kiss the ladies' hands when they're introduced. So you would go up and ask a, a woman to dance, and you would hold her hand and kiss it, and click your heels. So the, the Brits hated that. <laughs> they were married in 1941 in a registry office, although he was a devout Pole, because they just had to do that. Posted to Grangemouth, just outside Edinburgh, Aston Down in Gloucestershire, Usworth in Newcastle, Heston in London, and then back to Grangemouth. And he was a technical trainer uh, to Polish Air Force on Spitfire airframes and Merlin engines. And he was transferred to RAF Swanton Morley, my darling. Uh, uh, the 305 Squadron, which was uh, the plywood mosquito planes, uh, night fighters they were. Uh, and then was eventually transferred to the 307 Squadron at Coltishall, and then to RAF Horsham St. Faith's, where he was demobbed in 1948. He had two sons, my brother Julian, a little bit older than me, and uh, I'm Adrian, as I told you. And he then, when he became naturalised British, because he wanted to stay in Britain after the war, he changed his name from Zhukovsky, which is also on my passport, I was born Zhukovsky, to Odell. Now, where do you get lots of Poles <laughs> anglicised their name, but Zhukovsky is a bit difficult to anglicise, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, um, you know, Markovsky, who I talked about, he changed his name to Mark, you know, which is an easy change. My mother and father sat down one evening and opened a telephone directory and chose the name. <laughs> that is the truth. They, they found that we have no other Odells in the family at all. So he was uh, known for Odell then for 60 years after that, uh, but still very much a uh, as I am too. 
Uh, he set up businesses. We had a house in Burr Street, in a very dilapidated house in Burr Street, where Warminger's, the, the paper merchants, were. Do you remember that? Strivens, do you remember a little shop called Strivens next door? It was very dilapidated. No, no, there was running water in the house, but um, there was an outside toilet and it was uh, poor conditions. But he had a little shop there. And my mother, they, uh, he set up pours, a glass and china business. That was the porcelain he got enthused about in Limoges. And they went, he bought a little van and he went to the potteries every two or three weeks, picked up white china, because after the war you couldn't get decorated china in the war. And my mother, who was quite artistic, would hand decorate the plates. And they would sell them from the little shop in Burr Street. Eventually, he had two shops in Norwich. Stefan, does anybody know the name Stefan? Back of the inns, where Brahms used to be, where Jules is now. That was his little glass and china shop, Stefan. Two shops in Norwich, two in Yarmouth, and one in Ipswich. Uh, glass, china, and antiques. He was very proud that he was the co-founder of the Norwich International Club, which was a wonderful organization that welcomed students and refugees. So I see some heads nodding. Stanley Bagshaw, who was the editor-in-chief of the Eastern Daily Press at that time, was a co-founder. And he lived very happily in Norwich until he died in 2003, and he was 94 years old. And to the day I died, I still had my strong Polish blood and my accent. Thank you very much.